time for the last of our Circle 7 Revenants. They were obviously working on a sequel to Finding Nemo. This is, of course, years before this. Remember, the gap in between Finding Nemo and Finding Dory is 13 years. In, in real life, obviously in universe, it's just the one, but you get the point. But they're like, okay, we've got this whole idea. It's going to follow Remy. It's going to follow uh, Marlin getting lost and captured, and the kids have to band together to save him. And honestly, that doesn't sound all that engaging to me, to be completely blunt. Sounds a little bit too Nickelodeon for my taste, but that's okay. Instead, they were like, hey, Stanton, what do you got? And Stanton's like, well, honestly, I have a couple ideas. And I'm like, yeah, what are they? He's like, well, the core premise that really strikes me is Dory. Ignoring the fact that she was considered the breakout character of the first film, which you know is, is something that is popularly considered to be true, there's also the fact that so much of her presentation seemed to just scream backstory that needed to be filled in. So he handed this off to Victoria Strauss? Strauss. Victoria Strauss. Now, I wrote down her name because I have no idea who this woman is. In fact, I couldn't even find proper credits for her other than for this film. But she is the primary screenwriter, and while they did use the brain trust as usual, she actually did most of the singular writing for this film, which I point out because that's actually kind of unusual, well, for films in general, but especially for Pixar films, which usually have three or five or twelve people all writing it, right? So just having her was an interesting choice. Once she took the concept, she was like, oh, God, this is difficult. Because she had to write a story centered around a character who's constantly forgetting things. And that that's a hell of a creative challenge. Otherwise, it can just get rote and old and boring. And especially given the fact that, you know, um, she has to constantly be reminding people of that fact. And it is actually one of the weaker elements of the film. Not the forgetfulness, the fact that she keeps repeating the same. Hi, I'm Dory, and I have a short-term memory loss. She says that like 12 times throughout the film. That might be a slight exaggeration. It's close, probably closer to nine but with that creative challenge in place, like, okay, let's call Ellen. And they got on the, the line with Ellen DeGeneres' agent. But Ellen DeGeneres had apparently really liked playing Dory back in the first film and really wanted to come back. So she was just kind of a gunk and absolutely leapt on the option. Go figure. So they got the main back. They have the at the director. And they've got the, the writing. We've kind of got the ideas. What's the horrible things going wrong behind the scenes? Believe it or not, for once, nothing. This was actually a very smooth production, which is unusual since if you've been paying attention, a huge amount of the previous films have had troubled productions. This one, by all accounts, was just a pretty typical issue, or a pretty typical, typical thing. Um, they did have a little bit of tech push, but it wasn't actually for this film. It was for a good dinosaur. Remember how long that film was delayed? Well, that means that that film, and Inside Out, and this film, were all being developed kind of at the same time. They did a massive core overhaul of Renderman. Basically made a new version of Renderman from scratch. Why? Well, so they could do better stuff with lighting, which makes textures look better, which almost makes the terrain look photorealistic. Hmm. Now... I gushed about that excessively over in Good Dinosaur, and I stand by that. The terrain really did look gorgeous in that. And a lot of that is due to this massive tech overhaul, solving that particular bit of tech debt and pushing it forwards. I think it was put to better use here, even though most of the ocean just looks like the ocean, but all of the above-ground shots when the camera goes above the surface are fantastic. I actually have a note here on my second page. There's a specific scene... Where, uh, where is this? They're talking uh, to each other, and there's this big open moment between Marlin 
and Dory. It's, it's, it's a big, you know, loving moment, whatever. And then the camera pulls up, and there's a long shot of the ocean. And no joke, sitting right here watching the, the movie, my actual reaction was just... <gasps> And, and, and I, I'm not even joking. That's not an exaggeration. It was just such a visually gorgeous shot. I actually physically reacted to it. Once again, stunning, stunning visual work. And it, it shows. And unlike Good Dinosaur, this one made a little bit of money. While this one was an expensive film, even more expensive than Good Dinosaur in several ways, uh, it still made $1.028 billion just in ticket sales, never mind merchandising. So, yeah, no, the, the return on investment on the RenderMan thing was, was well worth it. And I'm totally down for that. <laughs> By the way, I know what you're going to say. Was the new RenderMan thing responsible for the, the, the dots, particle surface skin thing for Inside Out? I don't know. I do know that all three films were being produced at roughly the same time. With you know, obviously, with some overlap and some underlap, and I do know that that was something that was considered a huge technical challenge. So I don't know if that was involved in that or not. I wasn't able to co correlate anything there. Sorry, it's an easy thing to speculate on, but again, hard to nail down facts when it comes to the development because people don't write down the exact times they work on specific things often. So it's kind of hard to nail down some of the makings of. Anyways. This film actually had an interesting release schedule, went up alongside, I believe, Zootopia, one of my favorite films uh, ever, but also went up against The Secret Life of Pets. Now, this is funny. So I mentioned how I don't get to see all that many films with my niece. Sad face. I'll admit it, that that's a regret of mine, because it's one of those things you can't get back, right? I mean, it's it th that initial going to a film release with, with her is just something that can't be replicated. Now, here's the funny part. She went to see this film with her parents. I got to go see one other film with her, though, and her parents, and that would be The Secret Life of Pets. Yes, I saw that in the theaters. <laughs> uh, now, what's funny is I was exp I looked at this, and I'm like, oh, well, this film came out alongside Secret Life of Pets, and Zootopia was a box office smash, so obviously Secret Life of Pets must have done terribly. However, I'm not, you know, insert news program here. Name whichever one you want. They, they all suck. So I actually bothered to go check my facts on that before I reported my opinion. And sure enough, they didn't coincide. No, Secret Life of Pets made about 800 million and was, was another box office smash. So, huh. <laughs> That's three major... Now, it's actually funny. If you look at all the, fil uh, the films that sold really well in 2016... You'll notice that the top, I think, six are all Disney-owned properties, which actually means Secret Life of Pets was the best-selling film that was not a Disney property for that year. God, that was only four years ago now. We're getting closer to the present, aren't we? It's it's, it's getting weird analyzing films as we get this. Usually, when you all ask me to cover films, some of them are semi-recent, but usually it's like in the decade-ago range. I mean, what are the other films I covered this year? Back to the Future 2, Aliens, you know, Predator. These are 80s flicks. Uh, or 90s flicks. It's it's strange covering films that are so modern, especially since by the time these films had come out, I'd started doing the discussion series. For those of you not aware, plug, 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 one of the things we have done, it's kind of stopped happening in the quarantine, because quarantine, but one of the things we'll do is, you know, a, a new movie will come out, you know, like Wonder Woman. We did this with Wonder Woman. And uh, Wonder Woman 1984, I mean. 
and I'll go see it, and I'll kind of take a bit of notes. Not a full rumination, just kind of a laundry list of notes. And we'll have just kind of a discussion stream, usually at the tail end of a lore week. So for anybody interested in that, that's a thing that happens, uh, obviously, as part of the Lore Week concept. And I just wanted to plug that because a lot of people seem to not be aware of Lore Week in general and those things in specific. Movie. So, The Challenge of Raising Dory. I'm going to go and be real. I don't know if I could do that. I mean, I would want to. I would try, but I'm not sure I would be capable. I am an exceptionally patient person, which I know some people would contest, and they're wrong. I'm a very patient person. But the ability to just sit and be patient with someone and have to constantly repeat yourself. I mean, I already have to repeat myself constantly on the show because, you know, I have someone come in and say, hey, what's this? And then they leave. And someone else comes in, hey, what's this? And then they leave. Nowadays, I've kind of turned it into a game. Oh, drinking game. Someone asked about such and such. Take a drink. Not in a mocking way. It's it's a way to keep me hydrated, you know, to, to keep the flow going. No pun intended. But I'm not sure I could deal with that on a more or less nonstop basis. Her parents are very, very patient with her. It also kind of helps to emphasize something. As I already talked about, Finding Nemo was about people who were injured or broken or, or something in some way. And I, I went down the list of all the people and how they deal with that. Here, this is far more focused right in on Dory herself. And while there are a couple of other issues, like the short-sightedness and the, uh, you know, I, I can't be touched by people thing that Hank has going on, for the most part, it really is far more about Dory and her issues. There's not really much of a central theme in this one, actually. I'll get more to that later. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, as I often do with these ones. Forgive me. Let's talk about the interesting variety of reactions from strangers that she has. A stranger, oh my gosh, I'll help you out. Now, this is important. Her parents have a bit of difficulty taking care of her. Now, imagine a total stranger. Now, what I mean by that is the parent knows her and loves her and has a home and takes care of her and is used to her. But a total stranger might still care. Indeed, the first strangers we see are two fish, who apparently are married, who do obviously give a damn and want to help this poor girl. But they don't know how to. They're not equipped for that. They don't have any tools to deal with that. And it's just like, oh, God, we've got to do something. And you can just see that they don't say that word for word, but it's just on their expressions and on their voices. We've got to do something to help her. How do we, what do we? So we see helpful people, we see ambivalent people, and we see actively unhelpful people. Just a large variety of groups from strangers. And what's funny is this whole sequence leads right into the first film. But the reason I bring that up, and this actually adds to the poignancy of the first film, it wasn't necessary, I don't think, but it does add to it, I will totally admit is that this has been her life. Hi, I'm lost. I'm looking for something. Hi, I'm lost. I'm looking for something. Hi, I'm lost. I'm looking for something. And that's her whole life as she very slowly crossed from California down to the Great Reef, which is not a short trip. And then she gets there and she runs into Marlin, and that's when things start to happen because she has her first anchor, Marlin, who I, I talked about that in the first film. He served as an anchor for her thoughts, which helps her to remember, right? So, that's cool. And it's been a year, not 13, not 13. I'm going to ask you a question now, and then I'm going to repeat it later. Uh, do you think the flashback should have been done in this style, or in the same manner it was in the first film? If you remember, in the first film, they were supposed to do the flashback from Marlin's past periodically throughout the film, which is exactly what they do in this film. Instead, they decided to front-load all of it, just dump it all right up front, bleh, all right up front, 
in order to get that across and then continue with the film. They're both, they're, they're not right or wrong choices. They're just different approaches. So which one do you think works better? And in this case, do you think it should have been done this way? Or do you think they should have gone ahead and done the front loading and then done the film like they did the first time? So Marlin is a little bit of a dick. And I find myself wondering about that. I know I just talked about how difficult difficult it would be to deal with someone like Dory, but at the same time, he obviously cares about her. He obviously cared about her in the first film. As a parent, by the way, there's no romantic tent here. Uh, instead, this is clearly someone who has taken her under his wing, was legitimately thankful to her, was very happy about the consequences of the first film, and has had the last year to be with her and work with her. So there's only two ways to take this. Either he's not acclimated, or he's got the 1HP problem. Now, let me explain that a little bit. The 1HP is the wrong analogy. Let's use The Rock and the Show. If you've never heard me talk about this before, uh, well, you're in for the dumbest analogy I've ever come up with. But if you have, I apologize, because I know I use this often. Let's say you've got a rock in a shoe. Let's say you're on a nice, wonderful, amazing walk. And it's just great, and the, the weather's perfect, and there's just that light breeze. And you're going through this gorgeous area, and maybe you're with a friend, or a loved one, or a child, or parent, or whatever, right? It's amazing! Except there's this rock in your shoe. For the sake of the analogy, pretend you can't remove the rock. Now, that's a mild irritant, right? So it's like, oh, pff, whatever. And if you were to complain about it to someone else, it would just feel silly. It's like, I, there's a rock in my shoe. And they're just like, oh, yeah, sure. You've got this gorgeous day and you're complaining about a rock in your shoe. What's your problem? But then you keep walking and you keep walking and you keep walking. And the more you do, the more it irritates, the more it frustrates. And bit by bit, your focus shifts from all the wonderful things to that frickin' rock. And over time, it's all you can really remember about it. Now, I usually reference this when it comes to game design, because in video games, if there's a specific element of the game that is a non-stop irritant, even if it is a small irritant, well, you can see how it applies here. It gets to the point where you just, ah, oh, you just want to walk away from the game, even if it's an otherwise good game, because you're just so sick of dealing with it, and you can see how this might apply to Marlin. It is possible that Dory is a rock in the shoe for him, and he is just not dealing with it. Instead, it's just getting worse, not better. Whether that's true or not is debatable, and I don't think it excuses his behavior. Frankly, I think most of his dickish behavior in the first half of the film is just there to drive unnecessary character drama. But whatever. So, um, this is a good time to mention. Uh, they, they're like, okay, we need to go to California. Okay, um, going from the Great Barrier Reef to Sydney is a bit of a trip. Going from the Great Barrier Reef to freaking California, probably the San Diego area, is uh, it's a, a mm, slight variance in distance. It's funny, because whereas in the first film, the, the tinier trip was most of the film, in this film, they get it done in what is effectively a fade to black. I know a guy. Righteous, righteous, and then they're there, and that's it. Wow. That's, that's, uh, that's a hell of a way to deal with that. Anyways, I do, uh, I do like how the rays sing, by the way. Uh, I know this is just something I'm mentioning because it's on my brain, but you notice how Finding Nemo and Finding Dory are the good dinosaur's premise, just done better? I'm dead serious. What if fish were sentient and sapient? Now you're probably thinking, what does that have to do with good dinosaur? Well, let's rewrite that a little bit. What if dinosaurs survived into the modern era? You already see it, don't you? 
because the dinosaurs walk and talk and interact and are sentient and sapient, and they're just in modern times. You see it? You see it? And this is exactly what I was talking about. Now again, budget issues, production issues, I do get it. I'm just pointing out that they have already, and again, done the same premise, but better, and with fish. Because, you know, you have the animals, you have the creatures in this case, you know, whether it's dinosaurs or fish, and they're sentient, sapient, interacting, and living alongside humans. And we see some of those co-interactions, and we see how this particular institute works with them, and we see how they're still dealing with, like, like they're living in the, the, the hollowed-out hollowed out chunks of the giant uh, tanker, and the, the cargo tanker, and blah, 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 right? <sighs> Anyways, enough rambling about good dinosaur. Um, I wonder how high-tier squids are in ocean life. I actually don't know, legitimately. I would imagine they're decent-tier because they're squids. But I don't actually know how high they are up. Anyone want to answer that? I'd, I'd love to know. Um, Marlin's all frustrated. He's a dick. Rescue, rehabilitation, release. Then we see two little hints that fish are sick. Okay, that's a plot line that doesn't go anywhere. And then Hank shows up. Now, what's funny about this is Hank, first of all, is voiced by Ed O'Neill. Now, Ellen DeGeneres, as usual nails it. She is absolutely the core heart and soul of this film. I know you will never watch this video, Mr. Generous, but you're awesome. You did a great job. But Ed O'Neill is the other good one in this particular film. Those two form an excellent duo, and he does some really good stuff with his role. What's interesting is he is, how do I phrase this, less dickish to her than Marlon was, but for incredibly selfish reasons. He's just trying to manipulate her into getting the tag, whereas, you know, Marlin supposedly cares about her and is just sick of it. Actually, that kind of tracks, too, if we're going to go ahead and relate this to human interactions, because sometimes you're just sick of dealing with your insert family member here. You know, the acid test, as I like to call it. <sighs> but anywho, the fish... Real quick side note. While I gushed about the terrain earlier, and I will continue to do so, the fish look noticeably better above water. I actually compared directly between Finding Nemo and this film. Now, I mean, it's been 13 years, but I'm just pointing it out because this was one of the benefits of that overhaul of the tech I mentioned earlier. So it does look a lot better. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. And then we see a whale shark. You're in the film. Wait, you're a guy, and you're much more adorable. He's a whale shark. I don't know if you're aware of that. His name's Dive. He's cool. He's cool. Destiny. I like your name better. Destiny is actually super adorable. Don't worry. You're still cuter. And I wonder if there's a plushie of her. I'm dead serious. I might actually look that up just because she is really cute. Um, I like I like sharks. I've always liked sharks ever since I was very, 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 very young. Like in the two-year-old to one-year-old range. That's how long I've liked sharks. No joke. Um, so we see them. They talk. We see Hank, who's a superhero. I'll get to that in a minute. We see uh, Bailey, who has his echolocation. I'll get to that in a minute. We see the two-camera bouncing trick. It's the same trick they pulled off back in Finding Nemo, bounce between two protagonists who are in two separate areas. The difference here is in the first place, they were bouncing between someone who was on the journey and someone who was at the destination. Here, they're like, they do the crossing paths thing, which, which can actually be really frustrating for the viewer if they do it improperly. You know, a scene where someone leaves and then another person enters the exact same scene. So the camera technically doesn't move at all. It just shifts focus, that kind of an idea. It's a difficult trick to pull off, but really well done if... Let me say, let me say that differently. It's really good if it's really well done. I think they did it okay here. And that's kind of a point I'm, I'm building up to. 
they go in through the touch pool. Anyone remember the touch pool? I used to go to that in SeaWorld back in Southern California. You go down, ah, what's that? You know, they had the sea cucumbers, they had the, uh, the starfish, you know, and you just go like, huh. And you have to be gentle. You have to be gentle because they're, they're delicate creatures. I remember that. This is where I, I'm gonna go ahead and make a point. You notice I'm just racing through this film, and in fact, I have very few notes because this is generically good. Now, that's what I call it. That's my phrase for it. That's not an insult, to be clear. Generically good is still good. It's just not particularly spiky. You know, there's no spikes of interest or spikes of moments of awesome or spikes of discussion points. I have very little to say because most of this is just competent camera work, competent storyboarding, and competent animation, with good voice acting and some decent scripting and the occasional thing that actually made me laugh. It's generically good. It's generically enjoyable. Now... This kind of thing can be dangerous when it comes to, uh, well, films especially, but when it comes to fiction in general. A generically good game or show or book or song or movie is enjoyable. But the problem is if it's too enjoyable, or let me say this more clearly, if it makes too much money, like say $1.028 billion, then people will be like, well, why are we trying so harder to make something that's really great when we can just make that? I mean, that made tons of money. Now, obviously, there are creative types out there who want to make something great, and I'd say we are fortunate that there are still such people working at Pixar, at least as recently as Toy Story 4 is as far forward as I'm willing to go with that one. Not really super fond of Onward, and I haven't seen Soul yet, so we'll talk about that later. But the point is, you can see how it sort of demotivates and deinterests those kind of projects from happening. It is yet another reason why I'm so impressed we got Inside Out. And frankly, if it wasn't for the fact that the studio was kind of flush with cash, I don't think we would have. <sighs> Anyways, so yeah, the movie just kind of is good. One little character beat. Hank doesn't like to be touched. And references, I don't want to lose another arm. I actually like that. Like with Dory, his backstory is hinted at, implied, rather than stated outright and just laid out there on a dish. Now that's that's fine. There's nothing wrong with stating out an uh, you know outright a backstory, but it is interesting how they imply so much with him and the septa Septimus or however she said it, and uh, Octopus. Yeah, that's right. And it's it's just kind of cool. And again, Ed O'Neill is really good in the role. Um, so she remembers written stuff again. I, I noticed that from the first film again. Also songs, which is kind of unique. Now this. Uh, this is when the scene starts to actually really work a little bit better. Um, so she... The scene. Did I say scene? I meant the movie. When the film starts to work a little bit better. She has to go... She finally gets her way back to the thing. Her parents are gone. Her parents have been gone for years. Not that she has a sense of time. Oh, you just have to go through there. Ratzenberg cameo. And he... He's like, or she, excuse me. She's like, just go into the pipe. Now, up until now, as so, okay, let's rewind a second. Dory roamed doing nothing for years. Then she met Marlon. Marlon was her anchor. Cool. And she never really went alone after that because without someone else to help anchor her, she loses her sense of self, loses her sense of direction, and just kind of spirals out of control very quickly. She knows this. That's the really scary part. And so she looks at that pipe like, I'm going to be in there alone. And she starts to freak out. But she really wants to see her parents, and she really wants to make it. So, okay, left and right, left and right, 
Two lefts and a right. Did Hardy go left? Oh god, hang on, this doesn't feel right. I'm gonna go back. And okay. And this is another point where Mr. Generous actually starts to nail the character, because what we hear is the beginnings of a panic attack. Now she doesn't go full tilt. Instead, what she does is she starts yelling, because they already mentioned Pipe Pals. They they already showed that earlier. In fact, they hinted at that like three times till now. So she gets a hold of Destiny and Bailey. And I'm going to go ahead and pause for a moment before we get to the really good emotional stuff. First, we have a bit of a misstep where she stumbles into Marlin, and there's this whole makeup scene, which frankly feels that it doesn't fit. Like, there's this big breakup, and there's this big makeup, and neither feel earned. If you ejected both scenes from the film entirely, I think it would actually be for the better for it. So this is a superhero film. You may or may not have heard me say this before, that certain films kick off eras when it comes to fiction. Uh, excuse me, excuse me, when it comes to cinematography. Now, a lot of that is just someone trying to ape the film, trying to follow the same trend that a successful film did. But a lot of that has to do with more than just, you know, following the formula or following the pattern or, you know, bullet point syndrome, as I like to call it. Instead, what tends to change is the very... Let's call it the environment of filmmaking tends to shift. And you can usually track the eras based on that tone of the environment of how films are made. Even a film that isn't a superhero film made within this period, within the MCU era, because that's what it is, still has the vibes and feels of a superhero film. People being having unique abilities or being able to express them in a different way or maybe they have them in a sense that's pseudo-magical or maybe there's kind of a big conflict that they have to resolve in such a manner. It, it's, a, it's a stylistic choice. This film follows that formula. That's the wrong word. Follows that tone to a T. The biggest examples of that are Hank and Bailey. Hank is straight up a superhero. He has magic camouflage abilities, very, very good camouflage abilities, and he's got a very high agility, athletics, etc. And very strong, too. Bailey has a freaking sensor bar. And I know, echolocation, but that's not how that works. And it certainly wouldn't work to this extent and to this precise level. Now, there are other elements of it. I'm just mentioning the two big ones, although I think I wrote down a third. Did I write down a third? Oh yeah, Becky. Which you may think, what the heck is Becky's ability? She can fly. All of these, oh and also Becky just kind of magically can appear too, somehow, while staring through a door. Let's ignore that. Point being, this tone carries throughout the film, and I think this is the first film of the Pixar block that I've looked at specifically that feels like an MCU film. I'm actually quite curious if any of the future ones will, but with the advantage of hindsight, I find myself thinking, you know, Toy Story 4 kind of had that same vibe. And I've seen Toy Story 4. I think it's actually the only film I've seen of the upcoming ones, because we've got uh, Cars 3, which I've barely seen, so, you know, asterisk to that one. I've never seen Coco at all. I saw Onward. In fact, I did a discussion on Onward, so I guess that one counts. Uh, we'll get to that later, I suppose. I don't remember it that well. I wasn't super impressed with it. And then we've got uh, Soul, which I haven't seen at all. I feel like there's another one. But anyways, oh, Incredibles 2. I feel don't feel the need to explain that one. So, you can see how this tone could be seen in several of these films, and I'm curious if it's going to be in all of them, because again, this kind of affects filmmaking in an era in general, not just films of the genre in question. By the way, 70s horror, 80s action, you, you can kind of see it. We had a sci-fi tint there for a second. We've also had multiple superhero eras, and they've kind of shifted as we've gone through time. That's another one. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. 
back to the film. I wanted to sit and talk about that because the next bit is the long shot, which is gorgeous. We see the variance between the fish, little little skin differences, eye color differences to help distinguish them. Good stuff. Good stuff. But this is when the film really gets good. Up until now, it's been generically good. But then she is told, well, her parents are dead. And she flips. And the camera doesn't really know how to focus on her for a bit. Gotta wake up the cameraman. But what actually ends up happening is the camera switches to her perspective for a bit. This is brilliant. This really shows her just kind of having a complete emotional uh, shock moment where she just cannot process what's going on, cannot deal with it. And what happens, and this is brilliant, we see through her eyes, literally, all the stuff that's happening and she just doesn't react to any of it because she can't. Shock. And so all things go from bad to worse and things are kind of not messed up and then she ends up in the ocean. Now all of that's great. Here's where it gets even better. I, excuse me. Hello. My, my name's Dory. I've, I've lost something. What have you lost? I... I I don't remember. My, my, my them. I'm missing my them. I asked you earlier if you think the flashback should have been intermittent or just jumped into the beginning. Allow me to go ahead and say that I think parts of the flashback shouldn't have existed at all. We actually saw her go through this already, which I think diminishes the power of this scene. Eject those earlier scenes entirely when she was a child going through this little song and dance. And just show this scene right here. Why? Because this shows exactly what young Dory went through. Without her anchor, she is lost. Completely and utterly incapable of dealing or processing or even remembering really basic things. And once again, I have to heap praise on the actress because panic. Earlier, she started to build up to a panic attack. This is a full-scale panic attack. She loses it, and you hear it. And it's just, no, well, I, I can't do it. Because we, we now feel, and what's funny is this is one of the better moments of the first film, too. We feel how she feels in that moment because of this presentation. I will also admit, this is the Pixar Tears moment for me. I, w I wasn't sure we were going to have one in this one. But this managed it. This actually hit me in the feels. Which is funny, because I'm pretty sure the last Pixar uh, tears moment back in Finding Nemo was also the Dory scene. <laughs> she has so much difficulty dealing with this. It's so horrifying. It's so terrifying. And we get everything about how she's been dealing with this. And she's so hesitant as she's trying to talk to herself, because maybe it's over there. It's, okay, it's kelp. Kelp's, kelp's good. Kelp's better. I do. I like sand. Sand's soft. Maybe there's something over there. And then maybe I just... I, there's... There's shells. I like shells. Shells are pretty. I wonder if there's another shell over there. And there's just this hesitance as she's talking. But what's really awesome about this scene is that she endeavors and, in fact, succeeds at being her own anchor. She talks to herself so that she has someone to latch on to. Like she is always... Well, like she's had for the last year with Marlin. She had Marlin... She had Nemo and Marlin, and now she has herself. And you see why this got some tears from me. This is a powerful moment. Brilliantly done, brilliantly executed. Voice acting, visual presentation. You notice the lighting of this whole sequence is much darker, sure, and much, you know, it's, it's more color desaturated. It's, it's not bright or happy. But far more importantly, 
It's also dim. It's literally hard to see where she is. Hard to see more than a few feet in front of her face. That's brilliant. Because that's Dory. That's where she is. She can see right in front of her. And that's kind of it. So we literally see through her eyes, even when we're no longer in the first person. Or sorry, we literally see through her eyes. And then when we're no longer in the first person, we continue to see through her eyes. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant sequence. Forgive me for gushing. This is some excellent, excellent filmmaking right here. Now, unfortunately, I don't have much to say about the conclusion. They have the Shell Roads. That's cute. Um, how many years have they just been sitting here just waiting for? Okay, whatever, whatever. Not going to nitpick it. Um, the otters show up. You know, there's a lot of total strangers who just immediately drop everything to help them. You, you notice that? I mean, I guess it's whatever. And then they have this big conclusion thing, and, you know, Hank is awesome, and, and you know, there's this big epic speech, and he's just like, I was going to say, okay, can we, just, can we just go? They take over the truck. We have the typical, I mean, so many animated films have this, where it's like, you know, the one person is steering, and the other person is on the gas, and the third person's over there. Usually animals, you know, very, very common scene. Um, physics just kind of takes a nap, walks away for the, for the climax. And then they decide to do an entire sequence in slow-mo for reasons I can't imagine. That is three separate instances of what I can only call padding in this film. Now, this is a generically good film, and it has a moment of excellence I just finished gushing about for like five minutes. But this is a pretty padded film. I make, I, my, I find myself wondering if they were legitimately having trouble stretching out the premise to the full mark, because they have to hit a certain mark in terms of duration of the film to justify a lot of things legally and financially. So I really feel if they were just like, uh, just do this whole section in slow-mo. Just, just give us another minute. We just, we just need another minute. And again, all the previous padding I already mentioned. Anyways, so then they get out, everything's cool, and do you think they're going to do a Finding Nemo 3? No, I do. You know why? Because Finding Nemo 1 and 2 made a crap ton of money. Finding Nemo 1 was the first truly mega financial smash for the studio. And Finding Dory made, as I already pointed out before, over a billion dollars just in box office. Sorry, sorry, that's gross, not net. But still, it, it had quite a bit of a return on investment. So yeah, there's going to be a sequel. But there's another reason, too. Because at least as of me saying this, Pixar doesn't do things just for money, even though the money people control such decisions in all such companies. At least there's creative staff who want to make actually good stories. Before, before Finding Dory came out, there was some ideas and concepts revolving around a sequel that had to do with the tank tribe. You remember them? The, the, the dudes who, and dudes and dudettes who were in the tank uh, from the first film and got out and were in the little baggies. Those vanished. And Stanton kind of went quiet on all that stuff. Then they have a teaser at the end of this film with them showing up at the very end and being picked up by the Institute. So yeah, no, I think there's going to be a sequel. No word of it as if I am recording this. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope, as always, that you have enjoyed my thoughts and comments, and I'm looking forward to yours. See you next time.